welcome to the Premier Podcast, where three lads discuss all things English football period. On today's episode, we'll reflect on the main talking points from the weekend's Premier League action, including did Arsenal over-celebrate their win versus Liverpool? Is it time up for Pochettino at Chelsea? And what does the Lissandro Martinez injury mean for Man United? We'll review the key results from the EFL, including Premier Pod Cup holder Southampton moving into the automatic promotion places. It's Tomo's turn at this week's trivia, and we'll finish with Lara, who talks us through Yeovil's weekend loss at Maidstone. I'm your host, Alex Murphy, and once again, I'm joined by Tom Gallagher and Tom Lawrence. Boys, get straight to it. So the Emirates yesterday, Tomo, Arsenal 3, Liverpool 1. Massive win for Arsenal, keeps them in that title race. But after the game, mainly from Jamie Carragher, a few calls that potentially a bit of over-celebrating from Arsenal and something that we've seen before from them with like dressing room photos out on the pitch after three points and still yet to get over the line for a major trophy. Just your thoughts on the result itself and then those celebrations. Well, the result was massive. Um, it was massive for Arsenal to get those. It felt like the first genuine six-pointer in the title race because if Liverpool won it, I believe they would have been they would have gone eight points clear, and then it's a long way back really for Arsenal. Then, um, but look, they they completely deserved the win. It was they were completely dominant in the first half, and then and then you think Arsenal just do what Arsenal do sometimes and shoot themselves in the foot um, with the late first half equaliser. And I thought then Liverpool would grow into the game and actually I thought Liverpool might win it. But no, Arsenal um, basically played well all game and deserved, fully deserved the three points. On the celebrations, I don't really mind the over-celebrations, to be honest. They, But I do understand where Jamie Carragher is coming from because they they did the same last year. And look what happened. And the thing is with an Arteta team is they are very, he is very emotional. You see, you see him doing the Mourinho and running all the way up the touchline when they scored the third goal and sealed the win. Um, so you could tell it was, it, was, it was more important to Arsenal that game than Liverpool. But look, the only thing that matters at the end of the, it will be who wins the title at the end of the season. If Arsenal go and win the title at the end of the season, then no one will be talking about these minor celebrations after a big win against Liverpool. Um, but if they don't go and win a title, then it'll be another stick to beat them with and say, look, you've, you're not focused game by game because you, you feel like it, you're all the over celebrations, you're using too much energy and emotional energy. And it's not quite where well, it's not culminating in a title win. So I don't know. I ain't, I ain't got too much of a problem with it, but, I'm not surprised Jamie Carragher did because he's a massive Liverpool fan. So, yeah, Laurie, what what's your thoughts on that? Do you think a little bit like over egg from Arsenal? Do you think that actually the Premier League and major sport is such a big event and big occasion, and that's such a big game for Arsenal and the stadiums rocking that they're well entitled to celebrate a win with the level of sport they're playing? Yeah, I think they should celebrate it. <clears throat> and overdo the celebrations and, and everything like that, particularly after a, a win of that magnitude against the league leaders. And it's easy to look back on last season in retrospect and think, oh, they were over-celebrating and it culminated in them not winning the league. But Arsenal have just been through a tricky period where for the last month, probably six weeks, we've all written them off a little bit because Liverpool have come to the fore, City have got Haaland and KDB back and Arsenal's form suffered. But that was a big win yesterday. Big moment for Arsenal to come back, put themselves right back in the title race. They're second in the league now. And the other great thing is it's really, really good for the title race as a neutral because we've got Villa, who are still there, who have already beaten Arsenal and City. We've got Arsenal have beaten Liverpool and City. Liverpool are top. City have got their best players coming back. Spurs are coming back into it now. So it's all set up for a really, really good last couple of months of the season. But absolutely no problem with Arsenal having big celebrations after the game and it's really important for them to get that feel-good factor in and around the club because like I said it felt like a little bit of negativity was creeping in and oh here we go again because of last season but Odegaard and the rest of the players interacting with the fans building that connection and hopefully the momentum can swing an upward trajectory again for Arsenal on the run-in and that'll be good for a neutral for the title race and it'll be good for Mikko Arteta's chances of this year getting over the line. It's going to be difficult, but they're right in it again. Just on the title race, boys, what's your thoughts on, obviously, we've spoke about Villa um, sort of doing well this season, Tottenham doing well, Arsenal have picked up that big result. 
Liverpool obviously kept the pace. Do you think that that makes it more exciting because there's more horses in the race or do you think it kind of dilutes the competition for Man City a little bit because all of these sides are dropping points against each other and there's not really one clear contender to maybe challenge City? I think it's brilliant for the title race because you can't say it's diluting the competition when Villa have beat City, Arsenal have beat City and Liverpool have drawn to City. They're taking points off City who are currently in third. And although their better players are coming back into it now, I'm still not, as I haven't been for the entire season, entirely convinced they've got all of the key components that they've had in seasons gone by to go and race away with it this year. And I think having more teams involved with it means that different teams can drop points at different times but at the same time, different teams can go on runs at the same time and keep pace with them. And that's what's happened all season. So it remains to be seen whether City can go again and just win every game between now and the end of the season, which they always seem to do. But I'm not so sure. So sure. And I'd be much, much, I'd much rather watch the Premier League um, with this kind of situation with four or five teams vying for it. Because I don't think Tottenham are completely out of it yet than just City and one other. Yeah, good point. Um, so a couple of other games from that weekend, guys, around those sides. So just to touch on Villa, absolutely crushed Sheffield United. They looked amazing. Uh, they got Man United at home next, but they'll be looking to continue their uh, fine home form there. Spurs did drop a couple points at Everton. Richarlison scored a brace, uh, but cancelled out. Jared Brathwaite was linked with a summer move uh, to Man United, actually. Um, popped up in injury time and, and rescued a point there. A couple of other games, and the first one I'm going to touch on is the Wolves winning at Chelsea results. So Chelsea 2, Wolves 4, Mateus Cunha scoring a hat-trick. Laurie, what, what do you think Chelsea need to do there? Do you think they need to stick with Poch and ride it out and give him the time to try and make this young squad gel? Uh, do you not think that he's a good fit? Do you think that anyone would be able to succeed at Chelsea? I think that's a really difficult one, and I've changed my mind a little bit on it as the season's gone on, because at first, I think we had this chat maybe a couple of months ago, and I said that whatever the problem is at Chelsea, it isn't Poch, because they've got this kind of abrasive new attitude in the hierarchy, and they've kind of gone for like a scattergun approach of just buying as many sort of young, unproven, but expensive players looking forward to the future, not really doing an awful lot about now, and what the strategy looks like at present to try and compete in the Premier League, and that is going to be difficult for any manager to come into, but if you separate that and just look at Poch, and his performance this season, they've still got a really expensively assembled group of players. They're 11th in the league. And there's just something about him that doesn't feel the same as when he was at Tottenham for me. I feel like he felt like a bit of a maverick and someone that everyone really respected at Tottenham. And at Chelsea, he just seems a little bit like Mourinho when he was at Man United and Tottenham and a little bit more reserved and not quite as at it and not quite as in the same conversation as some of the other top managers at the moment. And uh, I think he's probably looking down the barrel of the first time this season of maybe being in a bit of trouble. And I did see over the weekend the first signs of other managers being linked. Jabby Londo was one again. And I don't think he could, um, you know, have too much argument with it because he's still Chelsea manager and they're 11th in the league. And there's only so much time you're going to get as a manager to do well at a top club like that. And in the usual metrics of management, he's probably already had way too much time. So, yeah, I think every single time they seem to turn a corner, they go back again and they'll lose a couple of games and they'll have a result like this, losing 4-1 at home to Wolves. And although Gary O'Neill has done a really, really good job there this year, they shouldn't be blowing Chelsea away 4-1 at the bridge. So something's not right. And, you know, maybe Poch's days are numbered there. Yeah, I'm, just quickly, yeah, I, I massively agree with what Laura said about Pochettino. I feel like he's he lacks a bit of intensity that... That he had, he definitely had at Tottenham. I don't know whether managing the likes of Neymar, Messi, and Mbappe has just completely worn him out. He does look a little bit worn out from the whole managerial gig. And um, look, Chelsea need a striker desperately. And the one thing that that I keep coming back to about um, Victor Osman potentially, apparently, and reportedly definitely go in there in the summer in my head I'm like why would you go he's probably one of the top he's definitely in the top five strikers in the world right now why would he go to Chelsea when they're quite clearly are a few years off um challenging for the major titles again I know he'll get a massive contract and I know um he'll be their number nine so he's guaranteed to play every week but just for me what if he had the choice between 
where he seems like he'll have the choice between a number of top European clubs, PSG probably being one of them, uh, Man United maybe being another, um, Chelsea definitely. Then I don't know why on earth you would ever pick Chelsea at the minute because they just seem so far off it. And um, I, yeah, I agree with Laura. I do feel like he's a little bit like a dead man walking. He's got that demeanour about him that he just wants to get paid off. I think with Chelsea, there's a bit of a mixture of like, they've got this owner who's made himself kind of director of football, sporting director, goes into the dressing room afterwards, all of these sort of titles that apparently he's throwing about that he's picking up some of the remit of. They always have injuries to important players. Reese James is always out injured. Fafana's always out injured. Um, people who'd be starting. They've got an over-swollen squad with way too many people in it. They've got people on eight-year contracts that have basically, in footballing terms, learnt themselves uh, earned themselves a career long contract really. So maybe those little percents that we see where people sign a new contract and get a little bit of comfortable come into it, and then you mix that in with having some really young players with a lot of pressure on their shoulders. So I say, though, Fernandez, I think they're twenty one, twenty two, both cost over a hundred million each, and then some players who are a little bit older in their career, like Sterling and Silva and people like that. I just don't think there's any one clear direction that they're going on and there's so many issues there that I, I, I think regardless of Poch's ambition as a manager his ability as a manager I'm just not sure how he's set up to succeed and why any manager would then go on to take that job because they, they say that Poch might have to leave but who do you bring in who who do they need do they need like someone who's got success like uh, managing a massive club before like but then who is that out there I saw someone earlier saying it needs like a Mourinho or a Zidane or a, someone who's got success at the top level, but I just don't see who comes in and and turns that around. Yeah, the the, the big worry I think for Chelsea yesterday. Okay, they they lost the game four two, but Ben Chilwell. Um, don't know whether he was the captain on the day or whether it was Thiago Silva, but in this post match interview, he said something along the lines of. They just wanted it more than us. And that reminds that reminds me a lot of Chelsea last season where they just couldn't be arsed and almost fucked it off, especially when Frank Lampard come in. And it feels like those players, and it's February the 5th, and it feels like they're already, what, they're 10th in the league, 11th in the league. They're probably right in the season off already. And then just waiting for their summer holidays and... Yeah, it's it's a real worry if you're a Chelsea fan. I, I, I still think there'll be um, a couple of seasons off it, to be honest. They, it looks like they've got some FFP issues they've got to deal with in the summer. If stories are to be believed, they need to raise £100 million by June 30th in order to um, not fail the, the latest Premier League sustainability and profit rules. So they'll be looking at selling the likes of, I guess, Armando Broja. Conor Gallagher um, Academy products because then it all goes into profit and that's before June 30th. So I'm expecting an, um, another massive upheaval, upheaval of players at Chelsea in the summer and maybe even another year of transition next year. Yeah, I just don't see, I, I don't see how they're going to get the money that they want for Brozier and Gallagher either. I saw they were, they were trying to mute Gallagher at something like 60, 70 mil. It's like, who on earth is paying that for Conor Gallagher? Spurs might be interested in him, but you're just not getting that money for him. They wanted the Brozier deal as well to be like a obligation to buy to get those funds, but I think Fulham have got it as a like an option to buy or potentially pay a loan fee if he makes a certain amount of appearances. So people must know as well that when clubs are in financial difficulty that they've then got the upper hand in negotiations. Like, you know that someone's desperate for cash, so you're not going to give someone 60, 70 mil for Conor Gallagher. You'll just be like, oh, we can, we can give you 30. You, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. you, you got the upper hand straight away. And that's Conor what Tottenham Gallagher's... did with Richarlison, isn't it? Because they knew that Everton were in that kind of predicament and Everton said, well, we've ended up having to take a cut on Richarlison um, because we needed the, balance, the books balanced by a certain date. Nottingham Forest did it the other way round and tried to backlog Brennan Johnson's sale, I think, and to say, well, look, we sold him later on so that we weren't our price wasn't diminished and governed by the fact that we needed to do it uh, in a certain timescale and they might be getting punished for it. But you're right. If we know that Chelsea need to balance the book by the 30th of June, then all the other clubs are going to know that and you ain't getting 60, 70 million for Conor Gallagher. 
that's for sure. Um, and for me, his stock's probably lower now than it was when he was at Crystal Palace. When he was there on over the season, I thought he looked like a hell of a player. But when he's at Chelsea, I know he, he plays most games for Chelsea, but he doesn't look overly effective to me. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of one of their better players in a mid-table side. So I'm not sure, you know, he's got the capability to go on and be a top player at one of the biggest clubs. And I don't think he'll have a price tag that reflects that, even if they can get him out the door. Some of their players as well, it's just that they they need to... Players that they've spent 60, 70, 80, 90, a million, 100 pounds on, almost look like they need replacements to come in. Like Saicedo, look, give him time. He's made a massive move from Brighton, but hasn't set the world alight. Enzo Fernandez won the World Cup, came as one of the most promising players in the world. Suddenly looks like they already need midfield reinforcements. Mudrick signed for 70 mil to be their long-term winger. Looks like they need new winger. Need a new striker. They've brought Jackson in. And look Just, at like Lavia, who they signed from Southampton, right? I know he's been injured, but how much was he? How much did they pay for him? Yeah. 50 million. So why, why on earth, if you knew that by next June, you had a lot of kind of balance in the books to do, would you go and drop £50 million on a player that you really didn't need to sign last summer? Do you know what I mean? Well, it wasn't going to be worth an awful lot. No one else, I know Liverpool wanted him as well. But he wasn't going to be worth an awful lot more the the summer later. He hasn't played anyway. Okay, they didn't know that. But it seems to have been. So that's why I say scattergun. They just seem to have gone in like bullish and abrasive into the previous couple of transfer windows. A, they haven't got it right, and now they're staring down the barrel of loads of FFP regulations. Which, with the contracts that they've made, you'd imagine is going to be a tricky wicket for them for seasons and seasons to come. So yeah, not a very nice time to be involved with Chelsea. I don't think. No, it's been absolutely shambolic from Todd Bowley and um, co since they took over. And a story of one of his first meetings of Thomas Tuchel, where he he outlined his perfect start and 11 um, for Thomas Tuchel. And in it was Cristiano Ronaldo as a striker, but his formation was 4-4-3. <laughs> <laughs> so he yeah. had 12 players. And that just says that just says it says it all, doesn't it? And um, but I tell you what's changed the game massively is Everton getting docked ten points for FFP, um, breaking those rules. And it feels like they might get docked another set of points, and Forest could get docked a set of points as well. Because now I do believe two or three years ago when when Bowley come in, I think they thought they'd be able to skirt around the issue, do some creative accounting. Whereas now. It's really serious if you do break those rules. So it's almost backed them into a corner and now they have to sell the likes of Conor Gallagher. Although, to be fair, like you just mentioned, Conor Gallagher, is he going to win you a Premier League title as you start in centre mid? Maybe not. So getting 30, 40 million for him would be good. But they've, but the fact they've backed themselves into a corner where he's got one year left on his contract, they have to sell him by June the 30th when the deadline's August the 30th, it's it's just a shambolic sort of state of affairs at that club. And the um, the performances on the pitch are just as bad as the performances off it. One, one thing you could say about Chelsea in a positive slant is the fact that the longer time goes on, for next season, for instance, those kind of big transfer fee young players that they have brought in will be another year older and another year more experienced, like Caicedo and Enzo Fernandez. I know they're two of the better ones anyway, but you would hope that the investment that they've made would start to bear some fruit for them going forward. So whilst they're balancing the book, hopefully those players, there must have been some strategy when signing these players, and they must have thought to themselves, well, obviously there's a lot of old players and a lot of young players in this Chelsea squad, but at some point, as time moves on, they're going to turn into peak players and players entering their prime. And hopefully... I would imagine in upstairs at Chelsea, they're thinking to themselves, these boys can, all right, they're 11th in the league this year, but they can crack on and become a really good challenge inside. It's just hard to see it at the moment because they just have been really underwhelming. But yeah, it doesn't feel like it's the opposite to like a breath of fresh air, that football club at the moment. It just feels all a bit stale and a bit under-enthused and everyone's mojo's gone and it needs a bit of a kick up the arse. And the answer to that is unknown. Like you said, Murph, who comes in and turns all that around if Pochettino can't do it? I'm not sure. No, no idea on that one. Another side who've not been having such a great season, but form turning round, uh, albeit temporarily and very cautiously, 
uh, signs of optimism, Tomo. Man United uh, won 3-0 yesterday against West Ham, about as routine as a victory as we've seen all season for United. Can't think of one off the top of my head that's been more like that. Uh, but overshadowed a bit with the news around Lissandro Martinez, who has sprained his MCL and looks likely to be out for another couple months. Just a bit on that and the blow that is for United. But also, do you think cause for concern that he's now had kind of three injuries in, in the space of about a year, albeit one was a reoccurrence of his first one? No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it as a concern in terms of is he going to become an injury-prone player. Just if you look at the... The first one was a, I believe, a, a foot injury um, and that, that occurred in a tackle against Sevilla. And then obviously it reoccurred at the start of the season. This one has happened when um, Vladimir Soufau has landed on him. So it wasn't like, it's not like his body failing him and pulling a hammy or pulling a groin or um, one of those type of injuries. It's more an uh, impact injury, which can happen. And it's just desperately unlucky because he's played. I think he's he's only just come back, and he and he he looked really good against West Ham. And as a sign of his importance to that team, you could tell the players and his teammates around him when he went down, and he looked devastated because I thought he feared the worst, um, and they feared the worst. I think so. It's a sign of how important he is to the team. He's just. He's a he's a captain without the captain's armband. He he's got that intensity that you want as a defender um, off the ball, and then when he's on the ball, he's progresses the ball well. He's so important to Man United's um, build-up play. So yeah, it's it's pretty gutting to be honest, and it it takes the shine off a a relatively straightforward performance. Um, Kobe Mainu. Fantastic again. Rasmus Hoyland, four and four now. And obviously Garnacho popping up with, I think he scored four goals in his last three games at Old Trafford. So probably sign of positive things, but just a note of caution about that Martinez injury. Um, and just because he's so important to how we play with the ball. Yeah, and I would say yeah. as a, from a neutral watching on Man United last couple of games against West Ham and against Wolves, they're A, so much better to watch. They look like they had so much more belief in their attacking play particularly. And I just think like, just echoing what you say about Lissandra Martinez's importance, when he went down, everyone around him you could see was gutted. But having a player like that who is so good and so influential can just lift the performance of the players around him. I think you said Delot yesterday had his best game in the Man United show. There's no surprise that that comes when he's got better players playing around him. So you need as many of them in the team as possible um, as you can. But let's not forget, you will still, even if Martinez is out for a while, which we know he is, it should be, I'm, I'm guessing it'll be Maguire and Varane with Delot or Wambasaka and Shaw on the other side. That's still a very good back four. And your forward players, if you, as you've just alluded to, Hoyland, Garnacho, even Rashford the other night, are starting to perform. Casemiro's come back in and looks a bit more, a bit, bit better than he did at the start of the season. Maynou's a bit of a breath of fresh air, isn't he, into the midfield? And things are starting to look up again. But obviously we say that with caution because we talk about that every now and again with Man United and then they'll go and lose 2-0 to Sheffield United. So, um, yeah, proceed with caution. But I think there's room for optimism there. Just a bit on Martinez for me as well. Um, I was listening to Talk of the Devils, which is a Man United podcast on The Athletic, and they were basically talking about his injury against Seville. United were absolutely cruising in that home game, absolutely cruising for it. Likely looked like they put the tie to bed in the home leg in the first leg. And the Seville manager said that there's no coincidence they got back into that tie and went on to win it because Man United's best player got injured. David Moyes said something yesterday. Uh, to to one of the guys who does the podcast of similar effect about Casemiro and Martinez being back in the side and it being unfortunate for West Ham coming up against them at that time. You spoke about Dallow having his best game. One other thing that's been picked on for Man United, and I don't know if you if you recall this, Tomo, but last year when we had that kind of solid back four, every time like there was a block or a save or the ball was clipped out and they won a goal kick or a throw in, they'd all sort of like high five and. Um, sort of meet in the box and be like sort of celebrating every moment. And I think that comes from Martinez. He's a very passionate, uh, aggressive guy. And I think he lifts everyone's sort of moods 
um, gets them really G'd up and up for it. And yeah, I just think they're a wholly better side with him in it. The other thing is, is that Ten Hag likes a left-footed centre-back, so he's trialled Luke Shaw at left centre-back when Marseille has been unavailable. And I think that loses so much of the left-hand side because I don't think it's any coincidence that Rashford has picked up some of his form from last year with Luke Shaw back overlapping and underlapping and providing support to him as well. So it's almost like that Martinez piece of the jigsaw, if it moves Luke Shaw in, suddenly you've messed up Rashford's game, our left-back's game and your left centre-half. It's such an important one not to have. And if um, the budget's available for Man United, I think they might have to try and recruit a centre-back who's maybe left-footed uh, who is within that squad for times when Martinez is out, because I think he, it's that important to Ten Hag to have that in his squad if he is still manager. But um, one thing I would say, Man United are down to one game a week now because of their uh, piss-poor performance in Europe. Uh, we've got FA Cup still, but it's mainly league now. So hope, And we've got an international break within that period. So it sounds really bad on the face of it that he's out for eight weeks, but I'm hoping that that's sort of five, six, seven games maximum. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, injuries happen. And yes, he's an important player. But like Laura says, we've got Harry Maguire or Raphael Varane to step in. So you just have to deal with it and um, and get on with it. Look, at the end of the like, if, he, if he's not available, you've just got to play. You've got to play with other players and they've got to step up. And it's Harry Maguire and Raphael Varane, both of their futures have been discussed quite a lot this season. They've both been in and out of the team. They've both done well and not so well in periods, but now they've got a chance to prove themselves as a partnership um, and I guess prove their long-term future at Man United if they want to stay at Man United because we know this summer will come up and the likelihood of Maguire and Raphael Varane's future being among the discussion points of um, Saudi Arabia and even West Ham again, um, that will probably sort of rear its head again. But yeah, look, M- Martinez is a massive blow, but at the end of the day, injuries happen in football. So you just need to to roll with the punches and and, and move on. Yeah, indeed. Just one other Prem game I wanted to touch on, chaps. Newcastle 4, Luton 4. Um, again, I can't stop apologising to Rob Edwards and Luton. I predicted them to go down at the start with least ever points in the Prem, which is just so disrespectful in hindsight. But on the cusp of a massive result there at St. James's Park. Laura, absolutely amazing for Luton, how they're playing. But again, I know Newcastle got back into it, so maybe looked like a good point in the end. But more drop points for them, down into ninth place now. Got Isaac and uh, Wilson currently injured, so suddenly their front three was Almiron, Gordon playing false nine and Murphy. It's just not all going that great for Newcastle at the minute. No, and they're becoming really difficult to predict. Like, there's a real lack of consistency there with Newcastle, and like the, the injuries was one for quite a long time. But every, like we just talked about, Man United, they've had a lot of injuries, and lots of other clubs, Tottenham as well, lots of other clubs do, and I think they've handled it better than Newcastle. Having said that, there is still that slant of a little bit of a victim of their own success because they were a lot better last year than pro- probably what they were in reality. So. Um, Probably harsh to judge them too much on that. But like you say, they're ninth in the league. So they're kind of in that position where they're like one or two wins away from being okay, but one or two losses away from being really in trouble in terms of probably the the ownership looking at a managerial change. So they seem to have been on a sticky wicket for a while, I think. Um, but a massive, massive relevance to that game is the fact that you look at the table now and Luton are a point ahead of Everton with a game in hand. And we're in February. So, yet again, Everton are going to find themselves in a real relegation battle. I know they've had the deduction, and there's talk that they may even get even more. If they do get any more, they will be down. And Rob Edwards, like you say, fantastic, because I'm the same. When I saw them play, I think it was Brighton the first game of the season, they just looked like on a completely different level in a bad way. And the way that they've kind of got certain players performing and they've adapted to Premier League life, and found a way to cause big teams problems and get points from tricky situations is a testament to Rob Edwards and Luton Football Club. So well done to them. Obviously, they're not safe yet, but out of the three that come up, they're the ones flying the flag and closest sailing to safety, aren't they? So I kind of hope they do it. And just quickly, actually, before we move on on Luton, I just wanted to um, have a shout for that signing of the season, maybe being Ross Barkley, because he's been absolutely different gravy for them. And we talk a lot about their Luton style of play, a little bit route one, a little bit old school. 
Um, very effective over the last six games. I think they've got 11 points now in the Premier League since then. So that's, if they continue that form, they'll be, they'll be home and dry and staying in the Premier League. But they've added the likes of Ross Barkley to add that bit of quality when they need it. And he's been, he's done that. Well, certainly he's done it over the last six weeks, but really he's done it all season and he's been so important for them. So kudos to them for, for re inventing him or reigniting his his Premier League career. And I've I've even seen some shouts that he could potentially get a call up for the England squad in I think it's in March. And then obviously then go to the Euros if he continues because he's been that good. I saw Talksport mute that earlier about Barkley going to to the next England squad. I think we've got a wealth of talent in those positions. That ten is it role is somewhere where we are not short of players. I mean, A, we're probably likely to play Jude Bellingham there, who's pound for pound best player in the world. You've got Phil Foden, who's back in the city fold, and James Madison. But obviously can't underestimate the effect Barkley's having there. But I think surely his, his time's passed now for England. Yeah, but only, uh, yeah, I completely agree. But it only takes like one or two injuries and then it's like, okay, he he's... Well, yeah, like you just said, you can't under, underestimate his his. Bef- his importance to that Luton side. But yeah, look, there's a couple of England players ahead of him, definitely. There was actually a Newcastle fan who's been in contact, a uh, bit disgruntled actually by Gareth Southgate's decision of where he watched his football this weekend. So big Newcastle fan. And he said that uh, Luton's game at St. James's Park had loads of England players on show, including Ross Barkley, Gabe Osho, Mengi, Doughty, Adebayo, Trippier, Miley, Livramento, Barnes and Wilson. He said he thought it would be the perfect game for Southgate. But where was he? He was at Ajax versus PSV to watch 33-year-old Jordan Henderson. And we spoke, didn't we, boys, about him getting back into sort of a, a decent league, albeit Eredivisie is not one of the top leagues, but getting back to playing a decent level of football. And that might be what gets him into the England squad. And if Southgate's there, Laura, watching Henderson on a Saturday, uh, probably means that he's firmly back in the England plants. No, can I just quickly answer that yeah. means that he just wants to 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 see him his fitness levels like like with his own eyes basically. I I, I think it's absolute horseshit that the England manager gets stick for where he goes to watch football. It, yeah. Like he'll have people watching that game for him. He'll be able to analyze that game without being there. It's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with what you're saying and I think that disgruntled Newcastle fans let himself down because I think the tweet he was referring to <laughs> said that obviously the Luton Newcastle game had Barkley, Osho, Mengi, Dowerty, Adebayo none of them will be going to the Euros anyway <laughs> Miley, Livermento, yeah, Barnes, Wilson none of them will be going Trippier we know he's definitely going regardless so why the fuck would Southgate go there? to watch a game that does absolutely nothing when we're on the precipice of going to the biggest tournament probably of our lifetimes where we're the favourites. One place I do want him to go is to go and check whether Jordan Henderson is fucked off now in terms of his fitness and his ability and the level that he's playing at because he made that horrendous decision to go and play in front of two men and their cows or whatever over in Saudi Arabia. Or is he looking a good player for Ajax? So I'm going to back Gareth Southgate there and say, yeah, that's a very important thing that we need to know because we'll see, like you've just said, we'll see all of the English players play every single week. Gareth Southgate will see him whether he's at the game or not. But quite often it can be outside, out of mind, particularly in the Eredivisie. So, yeah, let's check to make sure that um, Jordan Henderson is going to be at a level to help us in the summer. And I want him closely monitored. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, boys. I just, obviously, we get, we get feedback in, don't we, from from fans? And obviously, the, this disgruntled Newcastle fan asked me to air it. And yeah, I completely agree with you, boys. But um, we are going to get some feedback on it. Monday night football, City go to Brentford. Laura, you spoke about Luton being a point ahead of Everton, game in hand. We've also spoken on Forest getting dragged down into it. Brentford are only three points ahead of the relegation zone, and then a couple points to Crystal Palace. They have got games in hand, but. Real tough assignment against City, and actually Brentford aside, who if they don't win those games in hands, might be dragged right into that relegation scrap as well. Yeah, I mean, I'd shave my head if Brent- Brentford got relegated, and you can document that. Um, that they'll be way too good, um, especially with Tony back. They're far, they're far better than those sides did and around them. They might not win tonight um, against City, although that place, like I said on a couple of pods ago, it can get bouncing. Um, 
particularly against good sides. And I don't think it's a walkover for City tonight. But, um, you know, with Haaland and KDB back, you're probably looking at City to respond to what Arsenal did yesterday and get another three points on the board. But I'd love Brentford to win because I think they're too good to be down there. Um, I think they're in a bit of a false position. They're a lot better than, I think, probably a couple of the sides above them as well, the likes of Crystal Palace. And the more points we can take off City, the longer this title race is going to go on and remain competitive and there's going to be jeopardy in all the games. So, yeah, up the up the Brentford tonight and um, fancy a few goals in that one. I almost Boys. want Brentford to get relegated now. <laughs> yeah, that would be some sight. <laughs> Boys, obviously you two struggling in the mini league in FPL, uh, but many players in action tonight in the FPL side. I've got three, even Tony, Erling Haaland and Phil Foden. And I accidentally didn't do my team this weekend. Um, so I've captained Phil Foden again. So I'm, I'm hoping for a Foden hat-trick. Well, you're, right. you're hardly miles ahead, Snork. I think about <laughs> 30 points separate second from sixth, um, which is where I sit. And yeah. yeah, I mean, I've got KDB playing tonight. Hopefully if he starts, team news will be out soon. Uh, Haaland back in as captain. I've actually had a a dire couple of weeks, but I think I am quite set up quite nicely um, as we as we go into February. So I'm quite happy with that. But it just feels like the Prem's stuttered from that um, that winter break that we've had. We've sort of been all over the place for the last month, and I'm looking forward to a, a continuous run of games. So uh, yeah, I need Harland and KDB firing on all cylinders tonight, and Kyle Walker. But I don't know with all the personal stuff that he's had, whether he's anywhere near it or if he's out. I've got Foden and Haaland and I've captained Haaland as well. But if he's completely out of the squad and, and Pep's like said he's not quite ready to go or he's had a, a relapse since he came on last time, Ollie Watkins is my vice captain who got 18 points. So it wouldn't be the Holland's worst. Started. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully he can do the business then away at Brentford. If Kyle Walker doesn't play, I have Gabrielle coming in off the bench who is sat on minus one point. <laughs> Furthers the gap to me anyway. Right, boys, we'll move on to the championship. Tomo, come to you first, just to touch on Southampton. Uh, Pyramid Pod Cup, firmly in their grasp still. Adam Armstrong in the goals again, and a, a good win away at Rotherham to them and into the automatic places. Yeah, but I mean, there's no surprise they go to the, bot- the team in the bottom of the league, worst team in the league, and they, they go and get the job done. I don't know how many games that's unbeaten now. What is it, 22 or 23? Yeah. Um, and like you just said, Adam Adam Armstrong with another goal. Ipswich drop points again. I'm sure we'll come on to them. And and it, uh, it's so easy to say because they're, they're, they look so imperious and they're unbeaten and stuff, but they do look like they are cementing their statuses, I guess, second favourites to go up behind Leicester. Um, but there's not really much to, to add on to that game because you fully expected them to go there and win. Yeah, Leicester went and won 5-0 at Stoke, though. Uh, Patson Dacker brace, Jamie Vardy brace. So they're keeping their kind of end of the bargain at the top of the table. And Laurie, cast your mind back to Friday night football. Leeds went to Bristol City. Thought that potentially looked a bit of a tricky one, but it sounds like Leeds were very strong and maybe should have won uh, a bit more comfortably. Yeah, we won that game out of second gear. Um... Dan James was out, so Willie Nonto came in, not a bad replacement, an Italian international, and he was actually the match winner. But like you say, we could have won 3 or 4-0. But interesting that you think Southampton are cementing their place as second favourites. Leeds were in better form than Southampton. I know that run stretches over a long period of time, but there's obviously quite a few draws in there. And as of Friday night, Leeds were second in the league. And I know it only lasted, what, 12, 24 hours, but... The fact that we were, I think, 10, 11, 12 points behind Ipswich maybe a month, six weeks ago, and now they're fourth and we're we're sort of going up and down in and out of the automatic positions. That's where I want to be. And as we get into the business end of the season, do you trust Russell Martin, who is a very good football coach and plays a very nice brand of football and has got some good players, but has never achieved a promotion before? Or do you want Daniel Farquhar on your side, who's won the championship twice? I know which way I'm leaning. Do you know what your last game of the season is? Saints. Yeah, Saints at home. That could be absolutely huge. Yeah. Um, 
touched on Ipswich there. They did slip up at Preston. They're actually 3-0 down at half-time. Kiefer Moore, who decided to pick them, we uh, previewed on the last pod that he had a few options of where to go, picked Ipswich. Uh, he did score a brace, which is one crumb of comfort for Ipswich because they're obviously going to need his goals um, to try and get back into those automatics. But more drop points for them. And I just wonder if they're just running out of a bit of puff, Laura, and what's going what's been obviously a long season after getting promoted last year as well. Yeah, it's easy to write them off, isn't it? Because no one expected them to be up in and around it. But most of the time this season, when they've gone through a bad stage, they've reacted. This is probably the longest bad stage. But I think we, they've grown enough trust in probably um, us neutrals to think that they probably will come good again. I don't think they'll get into the top two because I do think... I mean, look at the top three now. It's the three relegated teams. And I think we all sort of kind of predicted at the start of the season that they look very, very strong. And it will probably finish as those three in the top three. but. Finishing fourth with Ipswich this year would be a very, very good achievement. And I think they should probably look to consolidate that and just get as many points as on, on the board as possible before the end of the season. Um, so no problem with it for Ipswich. They'd have snapped your hands off, wouldn't they, with fourth? They're still only two points off second, and maybe they'll come again. I think everyone else would have a little bit too much quality in terms of, obviously, Leicester, but Southampton and Leeds as well. Um, but you don't want to start looking over your shoulder. And I'll just say that Hull... Um, who already signed Fabio Cavallio um, from wherever they signed him from. Is it Liverpool he's from? Liverpool, yeah. Signed Zorori from Burnley on deadline day, who is a marvellous player. Uh, Moroccan international, who was probably one of the best players pound for pound in the league, sort of flair and quality-wise, at least last season at Burnley. And to have him um, and Cavallio and your mate, Philogene, Tegel, they are, and they're sit with a good young rated manager. They're going to be a problem to get out of those playoff positions, and there's only going to be two probably available looking at Leeds and Ipswich. So, very, very interesting. West Brom have kind of been in fifth all season and don't seem to be moving either. That race is really hotting up, and anyone in the top half can get those two spaces, I think. But yeah, it's really interesting. Every time you look at the championship table, there seems to be a team that have popped into sixth place that. You didn't really think won many games, but it's currently Hull. And their front line, you probably wouldn't trade for too many others in the league. Yeah, Hull in sixth on 45 points, and you go all the way down to Cardiff in 13th, and they're only five points off that on 40 points. So, yeah, crazy league, and just goes to show what three points means in the championship and the kind of fluctuations that can do on the league. Now, quickly, before we move on to League One, I uh, had a couple of people comment that one of their favourite parts of the pod has seen the journey that Teagal has gone on um, in EFL from not knowing that Stockport had a football team to now being a real source of, <laughs> being a real source, <laughs> a real source of knowledge to come to for insight. And this is now accumulated on him travelling to the northeast of the country to watch a weekend game. So, Tomo... Tell us about your trip to Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough, Sunderland, yeah. Midday, um, Sunday. It was, uh, well, I asked a couple of the locals what the name of the derby is because um, obviously you had the time we're derby um, a couple of weeks ago, I believe. And so I thought this one, but but it's a smoggy Mackham derby. And um, two teams going for that playoff, those playoffs positions. And really two teams who could have done with a signing of the calibre of Kiefer Amor in Kiefer Amor in um in January because they lack that number nine, that focal point, that little bit of quality. Um it was it ended one all, which I was happy with because I, I put a, a bit of money on it being a draw. Um so it was up for the day, which was nice. But Jack Clark is was the most impressive player on the pitch. He he absolutely tore Luke Alien a new one every time he got the ball. And that's not to say that Luke Hayden had a bad game or anything, because I thought he was actually quite good, um, especially with the ball. But defensively, he really struggled. Every time Jack Clark got the ball, Sunderland looked like we're going to do something. He, he even took two or three players on. He, he, he would draw defenders into him and then play the ball perfectly. And he did that for the equaliser, where I think he got the ball on the left and, and draw a couple of defenders in. Played Rusin in for, I mean, it was it was a good strike, but the keeper should have done better. But yeah, and obviously he equalised. But yeah, Jack Clark looks like someone who I've earmarked, earmarked for a big 
Premier League move in the summer. Looks like he's guaranteed to go there um, and probably tear it up. He reminds me of Jack Grealish in his Villa days. Um, he's got that kind of little look about him as well with the curtains and um, socks pulled down to his ankles, basically. No shin pads kind of look. So, yeah, it was a good game. Enjoyed it. Tomo, how would you rate the atmosphere at the Riverside out of 10? Well, first time I went to the Riverside, it was last last season and, and they got beat 3-1 by QPR. And I would say the atmosphere was about 2 out of 10 that, that day. But yesterday, I thought it was quite good, especially when Borough were winning. Um, but I'll tell you what, when Sunderland equalised, I think it was the 84th minute, the away end looked good fun. Yeah. Like, it looked really good fun. But yeah, and and I I went with a lad who went to the Chelsea game in the League Cup as well. And he said that the atmosphere was, and it looked like it was good on TV, but he said the atmosphere in person was unbelievable. And it was a sellout, which was good. Yeah, when you think about the teams in the Northwest, you think about like Newcastle and Sunderland having reputations for rowdy fans and having good atmospheres. I just wonder about Middlesbrough and the Riverside, not to say that they haven't got a good atmosphere, but what it's like visiting in person. So interesting to hear, but obviously you uh, you attended a good game there. And one more question, lads, just before I guess we'll move on for the championship. Can anyone tell me the top scorer in the league is? Well, she's Adam Armstrong. Armstrong. He's third. Oh. Morgan Whitaker, who got linked with a move to Lazio in January. Yeah, Morgan Whitaker, who Plymouth had on loan in League One last season, signed as he was deemed surplus to requirements at Swansea in the summer, and is now probably going to be a Premier League player um, come the summer, you'd think. But he's banging in the goals at Plymouth, six assists as How well. Many he he's got 16 goals, 16. six assists. Uh, Smodix has wow. got six as well. Uh, Smodix is on sixteen as well. They've dried up a little bit more for him of late, um, but Whitaker's ahead on uh, assist. And to be fair to Adam Armstrong, fifteen goals but eleven assists. So goal involvement, he's the uh, the clear clear winner of that race at the moment. We'll come back on to goal scorers in the championship in a second, Lauro. Um, Tomo, I think on the Riverside, I think. You- unless I've read it incorrectly, I think they had the highest attendance in the EFL this weekend. I think there was 33,000 there. Um, well, was, there. It was a sellout. Yes, yeah, so I think you went to the biggest game in the EFL. So they say big game in the North East, that and, um, would have been good fun to go to. Feels like a good time to do the trivia answer from your pod last Monday, Lauro, while we're on championship goal scorers. Obviously, we were going to do it on our uh, deadline day special pod, but we ended up sacking it off because of just how bad the transfer window's been so let's pick it up now so just to remind the viewers the question was the two people who've been the golden boot winner in the championship since it got rebranded to the championship 20 years ago and two players have done it twice right yeah two players have won the golden boot in the championship twice one of them I thought was fairly easy and that was your boy Alexander Mitrovic who obviously one of those seasons got like 44 goals, I think, and broke all kinds of records. The other one's slightly harder. Um, going back to 2008 and 2009 seasons, Sylvan Ebanks-Blake um, at the double back-to-back seasons for actually started at Plymouth but ended at Wolves and then a full season at Wolves, um, gaining his second golden boot 15, 16 years ago. So, uh, yeah, well done to anyone who got those two answers. I personally think that was very gettable. And uh, maybe you can judge your own championship knowledge based on whether you found it easy or, or difficult. Yeah, good question that. And a bit later in the pod, we got Tomo for this week's trivia. So, yeah, decent, decent question that. I must admit, I was uh, floundering a bit with that for a while. Needed a bit of help from you, Laurie, to get E-Banks, Blake. Wrap up some of the other EFL action, boys. So, League One, so Portsmouth won 4-1 against Northampton. Uh, Bolton dropped some points. They drew one all with playoff seeking Barnsley. And that means that Derby are now, Loro, into those automatic uh, places. 1-0 win away at Charlton. Um, all starting to take shape there. And hopefully they're just hitting form at the right time to claim one of those automatics and get back into the championship. Yeah, but you wouldn't know it looking at the Derby fans' comments um, under the um, tweets that the club put out. Oh, time for one to go, sick of this prehistoric football and all the rest of it. When you're a team like Derby in League One, it is all about getting promotion because otherwise you can end up being a sleeping giant for years and years. 
um, Portsmouth being quite a good example of that. So if they're going to get promoted, that's a good job well done. And again, we're talking about a manager that's done it a couple of times. Very Daniel Farquhar-esque for League One, Paul Warden. So why anyone would get on his back and moan about what they're seeing there? You can implement a new style and brand of play when you're in a higher league. You cannot be in League One if you're Derby. And it didn't look very good towards the start of the season. We all called for uh, loyalty and support and to stick with Paul Warren. And I'm glad the guys um, up at Pride Park did that. And now they're reaping their rewards. And it wouldn't surprise me, actually, if they went and won the league. Yeah, and then just one other game to touch on there. Peterborough dropped uh, points. They actually lost 3-2 away at Wigan. And I believe Peterborough lost one of their most influential players. Uh, towards deadline day, is it a, a Prem who played on the wing for them? Yeah, but he's gone. He's gone. Um, he's back there on loan, though, isn't he? You mean the winger that signed for Coventry? Uh, okay. um, is that yes. who you're talking about? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, they've got him back on loan, but again, it just seems to throw up these weird, weird results. Every time you think one team's in form and they might go on a little bit of a run to catch the likes of Portsmouth or actually just Portsmouth who have been at the top all season, they'll go and lose a weird game. Um, and that's why I was calling for calm from the Portsmouth fans a couple of weeks ago, because every single team in League One will go for a bad phase of form. Unless you're that head and shoulders in the league like Leicester are this season, you are going to go for a sticky phase. And it's about how you react to it. And that's not just the players, that's the fans as well. You need to keep the feel-good factor as much as possible. And Portsmouth are four points clear at the top. So they definitely had nothing to moan about a few weeks ago. Um, Peterborough are always in the League One playoffs every every season, aren't they? They're either in the League One playoffs or they're in the Championship getting relegated. So uh, this season won't be any different. Yeah, and just to mention as well, Stevenage also beat Blackpool. Blackpool are in eighth, Stevenage up into sixth now. Uh, so playoff playoff race, warming up there a bit. Not as many players fighting for it as the Championship, but certainly got the likes of Barnsley, Stevenage, Oxford and Blackpool who would be looking to claim those four, fifth, sixth spaces in the league. And just an update on our mate Move Des on. Buckingham, who we've had yeah. a little bit of an eye on, on um, at Oxford. They've dropped out of the playoffs, I think, for the first time since he's been there, which is obviously a little bit of a damning indictment on um, maybe the form since November, December, and he came in. I think they conceded a late goal to Reading in the early kickoff on Saturday, which was a bit of a killer for them. So, uh, yeah, all about the character at the Kazam Stadium now and seeing if they can turn it around and, and get back into those playoff places. But I think that's looking quite difficult now because Steve Evans is doing a good job at Stevenage and the other clubs look really like big League One teams that aren't going to be shifted. So probably a disappointed weekend for the uh, the Oxford fans. Yeah, one win in five for Oxford, only two points um, from that time as well. Uh, those four games that they've uh, dropped points in since. So, yeah going the wrong way for them. And as I say, when you get to the crux of the season, the EFL, it's all about that momentum getting into the to the playoff places. League two roundup, boys. So Stockport drew one all with Harrogate. I hadn't realised how well Harrogate were doing, but they've just been uh, creeping up towards uh, the, the playoff places. So an important point for them away at uh, Stockport. Tomo, Salford three, Wrexham one. So two teams we've spoken about at length. Uh, we've obviously had Carl Robinson come in and turn the form around for Salford, and we all know the the kind of story with Wrexham. But big result for Salford that. Yeah, and Carl Robinson's now five unbeaten since he's come in. We spoke, I think we mentioned him when he got sent off in his first game after 14 minutes from the touchline. But obviously, this is their biggest win of his tenure. Definitely, they've won three and drawn two now. Little bit cause for concern maybe for Wrexham. I think they've lost three in a row in the in the league or maybe two, three of the last five games in the league and they obviously got knocked out in the FA Cup as well, getting smashed against Blackburn. So, but like Laura said, that all these teams, they go through blips and and you wouldn't put it past Wrexham to just turn it around quickly. And um, well, and, and, well, they're definitely one of the favourites to get promoted. But yeah, they do need to turn it around quickly because just that blip starting to become bit more of a, instead of a blip, a slump, which um, obviously at this stage of the season, at any stage of the season is worrying, but at this stage, even more so. No one wants it in League Two. Um, Knox can't yeah, get it going at all. Um, the Mike Williamson isn't getting it going really. 
a few false starts at MK Dons. Wrexham have dropped out. Mansfield, who were unbeaten all season, suddenly can't win a game. I think they've left let Stockport off the hook, actually, a little bit, because they were running away of it, then hit a dodgy patch of form. But no one's really got close to them, and they're still four points um, clear at the top of the league. So there's loads and loads of chances for not just getting the playoffs there, but the automatics, I think, as well. But you would imagine, you know, the likes of Wrexham signing players like Jack Marriott on deadline day are going to have more than everyone else in the running. But, uh, yeah, no one really wants it in League Two. It's interesting. I think they've all come come off it a little bit. And Cole Robinson, I mean, that is a, a fantastic start at Salford. And it does just show that he's, in my opinion, he's a level above uh, League Two. He's a very, very good League One manager. And we talk about levels at in football players at, at different clubs. It's the same with managers sometimes, and he's a very good one. So that is probably the shrewdest appointment I've seen. Um, I think it's Nicky Butt, isn't it, making most of the decisions there now at Salford. But that kind of Salford setup make in the last few years, really good appointment, Carl Robinson. Yeah, they're, they're 10 points off the playoffs now, which is absolutely mad because they were obviously in the relegation kind of conversation not that long ago. But with 16 games left, Matt Smith on 19 goals, only second to Langstaff in the top goal scorer charts. I just wonder if they can carry that form on. As you say, Laurie, no one seems to want it too much in League Two. You've got Notts County, Harrogate on 44 points. Wimbledon have just lost their main man on 43. Gillingham's form's been patchy. Whether they're going to start moving up through that table and maybe might just uh, grab something towards the, the last couple of games and get into those playoffs, which would there's just a, be an absolutely unbelievable achievement from them. There's always one team that comes out of the pack. And the thing is, in like League Two and in the EFL, really, you can get nine points in a week. If you play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday and you win them all, suddenly that 10 points off the playoffs will look more like three or four probably. And when there's a lot of faltering teams that can't get any consistency going, someone might sneak in there. Um, there's already quite a few surprise packages. I mean, Barrow absolutely flying. But like you say, Paragraph, if you had told me without looking at the table where they were, I would have thought on the cusp of relegation. Wimbledon, Wimbledon yeah. have been absolutely brilliant this season. Um, obviously lost one of their better players. Gillingham, who were my tip I think to be in the top three at the start of the season just linger in there Accrington, Morecambe, you know there's lots of teams there with a chance and uh, there will definitely be someone come out, coming out of the pack and like I said with Carl Robinson at the helm I think Salford have got every chance Probably worth having a little look at the odds of that Laurie, see mm. what odds it is for Salford to make uh, the playoffs or get promoted Um just before we bring Tomo in to finish on the trivia question, Loro, not very often that we do a YTFC update and it being a loss for Yeovil. So just a little bit on the game at Maidstone. I know Maidstone flying high from their FA Cup exploits, but um, yeah, bad one for Yeovil. Yeah, but I think if there was one game that I could pick out all season that I felt like we might not win, it would probably be this one. Um, Maidstone obviously beat Ipswich the week before and I know sometimes that can cause a bit of a hangover but actually two of their best players and arguably their two best players in Matt Rush and uh, uh, Mo Fell the two talisman couldn't play because they were cut tied from being um, being played for having at Waterlooville and Averley respectively earlier in the season so they were rested and ready to go and the two of them both scored within the first 20 minutes and they'd actually both already scored against Joval for their former teams earlier in the season Put on top of that the fact that it was a plastic pitch, which we hate playing on. And put on top of that the fact that we're missing Michael Smith, who's our best player. Reese Murphy and Jake Hyder are our two um, sort of big household name strikers, if you like. And it just felt like that this one might be a bit of a recipe for disaster for us. And to be fair, I don't think two ones, um, you know, anything to be too pissed off about. Because Mesa are on a good side and we know what they can do. That They beat Ipswich 2-1 the week before, so... Win. We're certainly not at their level, and you can't win them all. That was the first loss since November the twenty fifth, so that's not bad, is it? Considering the next one came on February the third, and we're still ten points clear with the game in hand. So, even the Oval fans, I think, were were pretty um, pretty reasonable with their response to that one after the game on Saturday. Any midweek action for the Glovers, or wait till next weekend? Yeah, we're we're away again Saturday at Tombridge Angels, which I think is in Kent. So we'll return back yeah. up in the same direction. And then we've got uh, bottom of the league, haven't the week after at home, which hopefully we can, uh, yeah, return to winning ways in, well, hopefully this Saturday and then cement it and increase, start increasing that lead again at the top. Because it's weird, even though we're 10 points clear at the top, if, if it was any other team, you'd think they're gone. But when it's your team, you think, mm. again, if you lose a couple on the bounce, suddenly you could be four clear and then it's squeaky bum time. So, yeah, next three points. Hopefully, can't come soon enough. Hopefully, it'll be Saturday. 
Right, boys, we'll finish with the trivia question. So, Tomo, your turn this time, so let us have it. Okay, so um, cash your mind back to last season, um, 2022-2023 Premier League season. We all know that Man City won the title for the third year in a row. Um, But what I want to know, and obviously don't Google this, um, but what I want to know is what links the five teams that finished 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th and 12th in the Premier League season last year? Brilliant. Yeah, as Tyler says, no looking at the league table. Have a think about who finished in those positions from your memory and let us know what the link is. Get in touch, uh, comment. And just an ask uh, from all three of us, actually, if you can give us some five-star ratings on your, however you listen to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you watch us on YouTube, if you can like and subscribe, it really helps us in helping to grow this pod. Uh, Looking to bring some more guests on and grow the pod even further as we move through the season. So. Uh, thanks for everyone who has listened so far but if you could uh, do the good thing and give us five star reviews someone's actually given us one less than five star actually so we'll find out who that is but uh, yeah be much appreciated and is a massive help to us <coughs> boys that's all we got time for we'll be back later in the week review some of the midweek action there is some EFL games and some FA Cup replays and look ahead to another weekend's action but pleasure as always cheers chaps nice one one two three